Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Here is the only man in the world who could have made this movie, Terry Gilliam. Oh, okay. Is this going to work? Hello. I think this is going to work. Hello. I feel far away from you, but congratulations on this movie. Reach across here. Yeah. Uh, since we're here tonight with the Society of Composers and Lyricists, uh, I have this dream that when, when Oscar night comes around, they're going to get to do a production number of We Are the Children of the World, the song that you wrote, which is a sort of takeoff on all these uh, sort of feel-good charity oh, I know, celebrity totally. songs. Could you talk about that song? Well, I mean, I, I, I know Michael's dead, but <laughs> uh, I always hated that song that he wrote. And it's... Uh, and so one had to you know, deal with our concern for the children of the world in uh, as pathetic and satirical a way as possible. I think it's really funny because it's been nominated for the Satellite Award for the best song. And, and I wrote it as a joke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so anyway, the yeah, there's that, jokes, that, right? that, it's that awful saccharine, sentimental thing, children as victims, and it makes me crazy. <laughs> And, of course, the other song, We Love Violence, is, uh, is, uh, harkens back to, uh, Monty, I think, the yeah. Monty Python tunes. Yeah, I think, well, I don't know. I just I had to write something. I had to sing <laughs> something. And I thought, how do, you, how, how do you deal with a bunch of Russian thugs that are dangerous? And I thought, well, the best thing to do is try to confuse them with music and, and uh, lure them into the police force with, uh, with a kind of uh, high-kicking number, uh, encouraging them to do what they do best, which is be violent. So... Uh, <laughs> We wrote it, and we did it, and uh, uh, you probably wouldn't appreciate it, but it, the credit is through the Sir Ian Blair Memorial Choir, and Ian Blair was the police commissioner in London when uh, Menendez, the um, Brazilian guy, was shot, uh, thinking he was a terrorist, uh, and I thought Ian Blair should be remembered for his fine work at protecting the innocent. <laughs> Um, watching this film, I, I had mentioned Monty Python, but so many. This is the type of movie that evokes so many of your other works. It, it just feels like a uh, not a summary of your career because we we assume you're going to keep working. But it but it evokes the, um, so many of your movies. Could you talk about? Is that something you specifically had in mind, or is that just how it came well, out? Well, it was. I did actually say when when Charles McCune and I started writing it to try to think of it as a compendium of right. things I've done and the ideas that I've been interested in. I was actually thinking at the time uh, of Fellini's Amarcord and, uh, and um, right. Bergman's Fanny and Alexander because I thought both of those films were done by those directors at a specific point in their life where they kind of relaxed for a bit and just did what they had done earlier, happy, joyful, and, and that was the way we kind of approached that. So what got you to that point where you, you were ready to do that? You know? I was worn out, I think. <laughs> I mean, at a certain point, it's just... It was, it was curious, because I hadn't written anything original, truly original, since Brazil. And it was really... Uh, and can I do it anymore? And literally, we started with a, just a blank piece of paper. No real idea, no story, no characters. And little by little, we started accruing things, and suddenly there was a story full of characters. And Imaginarium is not a... I mean, I, I sort of, when I hear the title, I sort of 
know what it's going to mean, but it's not a real thing, right? I mean, there's... No, I don't <laughs> think so. But there was always that, that Victorian thing. Um, they were always using uh, words with a Latin ending like that to give it some dignity, something great was going on, the imaginarium. And, and we went with it. I also like the idea of just a title with more syllables than any other film has ever had for a title and see if people could actually learn to say more than one syllable at a time. Imaginarium. That's a lot. Uh, and it looks great in London when it's on the marquee of the cinema. You couldn't, I mean, it was squeezing everything out. They, all, they got all the words up there one day, and it was fantastic. <laughs> and um, how did the sort of look of the film come together? Because it has this really wonderful mix of sort of new style and old style, mainly old style uh, effects. Yeah, I don't... I, I mean, on the effects of the whole thing you're talking about. Yeah, as the, far whole, as, the whole sort of look of it. Yeah. Well, the idea was the Imaginarium was probably Victorian. Uh, and, and I've always loved the old sideshows, freak show, um, um, the way it was done with big canvases with the paintings of the, the three-headed man, the, you know, the woman slithers on her belly like a reptile. And that always intrigued me. So it was part that, part toy theater. There's, um, I always loved those Victorian toy theaters. Um, and so that's, it's a combination of all the, the, the things I would probably like to have been able to play with when I was a kid and we couldn't afford or didn't know about. And, and could you tell us a bit about your process in creating these? I mean, do you sort of do, just do sketches, like um, yeah. sort of on your own and then I just give, hand, the, hand these to some yeah, production yeah. designer? Who has Wiggle to... a pencil around the page. <laughs> I, I drew the, the, the theater pretty accurately right from the beginning. And then you, you work with really good people. And I was working with Dave Warren and Anastasia Massaro. Uh, Anastasia handled the Canadian side because it was a UK-Canadian co-production. She did the Canadian stuff and Dave did the stuff in, in London. Um, and and um, we just started drawing. That's the advantage for me because I can draw. Uh, it's half the communication process when you're making a movie, whether it's the costume department or the sets. So we start drawing, ideas come in, we pull in photographs, pictures, ideas, and slowly the thing develops into what it is. Now, of course, there's a bunch of questions to ask about the actors in the film. I, I want to start by asking about Lily Cole, who's, who is Valentina, who has such an unusual and great quality, because I think your films always are in this world between childhood and, and adulthood, and she epitomizes that. But we're... Well, again, looking for a daughter for Parnassus, and I thought she had to be extraordinary, uh, and extraordinary looking as well. So Lily's you know, very tall, and she's got this head that belongs on a Victorian porcelain doll. It's just bigger than a doll's head, but it's almost the perfect proportions. These great eyes, this tiny mouth... And, and um, I met her, the British um, the casting director, Irene Lamb, had uh, worked with her on, there was a little film that Sally Potter did, I think it was called Rage, and, and Lily had um, done a monologue there, and she said she's very good, she's very interesting. I met her, she was very smart, very self-possessed. Um, we screen tested her, and she wasn't bad, she wasn't great, but I just thought, ah, there's something about this girl and then threw her into that pit of great actors, and she floated right up to the top. Um, so, of course, I have to ask about Heath Ledger, and first of all, the first thing I want to ask is just the, uh, what was the quality about him that drew you to cast him in the first place? Well, he actually asked to be in the movie. That's, mm -hmm. That made it easier. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, is Heath and I, I mean, after Brothers Grimm, we were very close. I mean, yeah. Heath, to me, was just the most extraordinary actor 
uh, and he was just getting better all the time. Yeah. He was constantly, he was playful, he was smart, he was always grounded. Um, it was very special. He was a really close friend. And um, he was in London when he was doing The Joker for Dark Knight, and he was at the time working on a music video. And I put him in, in an office at our effects company, and there was one day he was there, and I was going through the storyboards with the effects guys up on a big screen, and he slipped me this note in the middle of it saying, can I play Tony? Yeah. And, uh, and that was it. <laughs> I mean, I see you sort of tearing up thinking about him. Um, I, oh, yeah, that's terrible. I mean, no, Eve was very close. And, yeah. uh, and you know, when you're in the middle of a film like this, halfway through, and you know, he dies was you know, beyond a shock, but uh, everybody basically pulled together and forced me to get off the floor and work out how to fix it. What's so odd, of course, is that there's an aura about that the fact that he's played by different people has that works in a way that's yeah, I know. artistically I mean, powerful, it, but it's, it's hard it's, to think about how you were able to work through that like, at well, the time. Well, I mean, it's, it was inherent in what we had done. I mean, I, there's very little change in, in um, the script after he died. Once we made the leap to uh, use three other actors to complete the part, because it, it had already been established in the script that you know, if you go through the mirror with uh, somebody else, their imagination may be stronger than yours. So you... You, know, you may end up looking like their dream man as opposed to the way you look. And that worked. So I added certain lines, like when the, the, the Louis Vuitton woman, as she's called, the, shop, the lady from the shopping um, precinct, when uh, she pulls the mask up and sees Johnny, I just added the line, oh, I dreamed you would always look like this. So mm. that was what we did. Uh, with the drunk at the beginning, I had his face change again to establish his principle. Yeah. And, uh, and it just seems to work seamlessly. It was, I, I've, I've come to believe in the film gods that are actually making the movie, not me. There's some, some force up there that's making it. And, and to get Johnny, Colin, and Jude, they were just a perfect, to me, trio to take over the various uh, aspects of Tony's character. Um, this is sort of a heavy-handed thematic question, but, but I wonder how much... The film seems to be saying something about the place of the artist in a very commercial, modern world, you know, and, and this is sort of a fight you've been fighting for about yeah. 40 years, at least. <laughs> so could you talk no, about I, I, it, it, it was always to me, I mean, because our original... The first idea that really started forming this was the first shot, this extraordinary theatrical wagon coming into a modern city, and then it opens up. And there's this amazing, outrageous, antique, bizarre show going on. Wonderful, though. And nobody's paying attention. And that just seemed to be pretty much, I think, anybody who's got any artistic uh, qualities, sensibilities, understands the feeling. Yeah. Uh, okay, I want to open it up to the audience. So um, I'll repeat your question so everybody can hear. So right there. Okay, why choose films that are about the conflict between fantasy and reality rather than just doing a pure fantasy? I don't know what pure fantasy is. <laughs> it's the reality. It doesn't really interest me. I mean, what interests me is, is um, that relationship, how one informs the other. I mean, we live in a world where we're basically inventing the world around us every day if we think about it. And if it's not you personally inventing the world you're in, it's certainly the media is inventing a word, world right. for you. And, and, and I've always just been intrigued by 
how you know you need fantasy to make the world an interesting enough place or a more fantastic place, but you need your feet on the ground all the time. And so it's this, to me, this permanent conflict. And I've never quite worked out uh, the exact borderline, so I keep trying each film to do another version of it and see if which one is getting closer to the truth. <laughs> okay, over here. Okay, I guess you, he's saying you started making films in a much, what he says is a much more open time in the 60s and 70s creatively, and then how do you see the situation today? I would, I would learn um, spot welding or carpentry, something useful, <laughs> personally. I, I don't know how you do it now. I mean, luckily there's the web there, and you've got your little digital camera, and you can cut the stuff at home on your computer. Fantastic. And you can get it out there, and people on the web can see your work. And um, I don't know how you make a living doing that, but uh, <laughs> it's certainly a way of showing what you can and cannot do. I used to, I mean, when I was starting, I managed to save up enough money to buy a Bolex 16mm camera. And every, I was living with two other guys in this flat up in uh, on the west side of uh, Manhattan. And every weekend, I'd go and buy a, 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 th a three-minute roll of film. And whatever the weather was, we would write a little film story and go out and shoot it, get some friends in, wear some costumes. And, and that's how we played and tried to learn a little bit about filmmaking. And that was it. But, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I've been astonishingly lucky. Forget about what the times were like then. Python was in a situation where we'd become quite you know, popular. And Britain was in a situation where if you made a lot of money, you could end up paying 90% tax. Suddenly, suddenly there was a lot of pop stars who happened to like Python who were looking for a tax, some tax relief. We were it. Uh, and then two of us, Terry Jones and I, raised our hands and said, anybody named Terry should be able to direct this thing. And the others agreed. And that's how I became a director. Uh, so I'm not a very good example for most people. <laughs> I mean, my trick was to start at the top and work down, which uh, I, I, I haven't worked down as low as I had hoped I would by now. But, of course, your, your first films that you uh, were famous for were the little animations you did. And the, there's something about the spirit of the animator, because animation is really the form of filmmaking where everything does start from scratch, like starts from, the, from a blank page. And, and you, this film... It's a live-action film, but it really has the spirit of an animated film. Yeah, I, I think that the problem now is, and what you're talking about, is it's a very bad time for films, and, and even for people who have got uh, experience and a, tr uh, and a track record, it's terrible. I mean, the studios are all contracting. They're just deciding to do you know, franchise films, and you know, maybe just a few a year, and they'll all be above 100 to $200 million budgets. Or you make your little uh, romantic comedy, if you're lucky, for under $10 million. It's outside in the independent uh, sector. In America, most, uh, many of the independent companies have been um, basically run out of town by the studios. And the studios closed down their little cadet branches. And uh, not good time. The rest of the uh, world, there's still ways of getting money. And that's where I am at this point, raising money outside. But at least I've got a reputation, and I know how difficult it is. I mean, this film, interestingly enough, 
you go to Hollywood in 2007 with that script, with Heath Ledger, the cast we had, and in the end, all we needed to get out of this country for North America, for uh, um, the U.S. was four million dollars. Hmm. We couldn't get it. So, really? you know, and, and that's and that was those were the good days. <laughs> it's worse <laughs> now. <laughs> Wow. So it's not a good time, and that's why I think spot welding is the thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right over here. So the directors right now who are working that you're excited by? I actually don't watch films very often. I mean, it really is true. I just don't. I mean, I just, you know, the Coen brothers I always love. Um, I don't know. That's the kind of question I don't actually have an answer for because I don't know who's out there and what they're doing. <laughs> their threat to me is all I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, over here. So the question about the evolution of the makeup design with Christopher Plummer's character, for example. It was just kind of a bold leap is what it was because, I mean, Chris is 80, 78. It's very hard to pull all of his face behind his ear. So, you know, <laughs> we, we start doing all those basic things that one would do, you know. And, and it still is looking, you know, a certain age. So it was a, just a bold idea because, you know, we thought, okay, People use coal around their eyes in, in a lot of uh, Middle Eastern countries. So let's be bold. Just a woof. We also just painted it in a cheek, very obvious, and just decided to do it stylized and say that's what they do in that part of Tibet or wherever it is. The, the interesting thing that I don't know how many of you noticed is the chant they're doing because, in fact, it's a, uh, it's a very rare and uh, unique form of Tibetan Judaism because they're actually saying Om Vey. These are the things we do to entertain ourselves (laughs) when we're making the movie. (laughs) Okay. It's a little hard to see through the spotlight, but over here. Did you have some... Because of the Fisher King in this, did you have some childhood desire to climb ropes? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I had a tree house. It was three stories high. I built it out of the old outhouse. that We, we had a two-seater uh, in Minnesota. Uh, and uh, when finally we got an indoor toilet, we, my father and I broke up the old two-seater out there in the back garden and built a three-story tree house. So climbing has always been... Uh, a uh, thing I've loved, whether it be trees or, or ropes. I used to actually, in, in high school, I was a pretty good gymnast, and I could just go up a rope, no legs, just boom, boom, boom. I was, I was good. I was young. I was strong. I'm old now. <laughs> These are just distant memories. <laughs> okay, over here. Okay, so if you could talk about the choice of composer, Michael Dan, I guess, and how the scoring works. Well, Michael and Jeff uh, did the score for Tideland, a previous uh, film, and they did it because uh, it was a UK-Canadian co- co- uh, UK co-production, and I had to use a Canadian, so I was forced to use them. Uh, <laughs> but it was one of those things that was great. I mean, 
Uh, I'd always liked Michael's music on the Egoyan films, Adam Egoyan films. I thought they were extraordinary. And it was interesting in that instance because Michael said yes, and then he wasn't totally available because Adam's film uh, that was supposed to be delayed suddenly happened. So he brought his brother Jeff in, and it was the combination of the two of them that worked very well on Tideland. And so I brought them in on this one. Um, and there was there's a scene that isn't in there when the when the little kid runs into the mirror at the beginning. And there's this amazing children's fantasy world. It w- went further, and at one point there were a thousand kids learning to play the piano, and M- Michael wrote a tune for them to play, which then became the the Parnassus tune that keeps down, ba- bouncing around through it, and they just dove in. I. In some ways, I was less involved in the day-to-day business of the score on this one than normally because I trusted him. And uh, they just started grabbing these very interesting sounds. I mean, that's what one of the things I like about both of them. Their instrumentation is fantastic. And they're coming up with wonderful themes, and I just we just went with it. Um, and there's a lot of juggling around. You try a theme, oh, I'll work better over here. And eventually, we've got it worked out, all oh, the... the um, the, the, the different uh, uh, musical sections. And then we, we uh, scored it in uh, Budapest. Hmm. Uh, and so there's some wonderful stuff. And there's, there's, there's um, dulcimers, which is the thing you can really find there. There's yeah. some great sort of almost klezmer uh, violin playing. And a lot of nice sort of Eastern sounds. I mean, I personally have always been very keen on... Um, particularly gypsy music from Hungary, Romania, that area. It's fantastic, the rhythms, the instrumentation. Um, and so there's a lot of that going on in there. Um, but normally when I'm working on a film, I'm just sitting on the composer uh, day after day. When we were doing, I remember doing Brazil with Michael Kamen. Um, he would have his grand piano there, and this is the early days, and he'd have a little monitor there with the old uh, VHS tape. And uh, we would start playing the scene and go. And, and Michael would be on the piano, and I'm saying, <laughs> and Michael's grabbing chords, little arpeggios, and, and, and all of this. And then we'd stop, and we recorded all that, and then we'd play it back, and we'd say, mm, that was really good. Well, that was wonderful. Let's use that and let it grow. And those were days I was much more involved in that sense. Uh, and uh, it's nice to, uh, to find somebody like the Danas and, and learn to trust them. Mm-hmm. So they were constantly surprising me with wonderful mm-hmm. themes, and, and that was how it went. Hmm. Okay, right over here. So he says your style is very recognizable in every frame of your films. Um, he's asking specifically about use of canted angles, of wide-angle lens, and, um, and the sort of... <laughs> it's really funny. People talk about, you know, oh, it's instantly identifiable when they look at my films. I don't know what they're talking about, frankly. <laughs> I, want, I, I, I don't feel... I just, to me, it looks normal. It just seems, how else do, does the world look? That's, that's really what it is. It's not like an intellectualization of it. It's just that's the way I see the world. I think it's coming from being a cartoonist. <laughs> you, know, you, you abstract and you, you stretch things. Now, and wide-angle lenses, 
I like for a couple reasons because when I'm looking through the camera, I keep saying, oh, let's go wider on this. Because when I'm looking through the camera, it's like, like I'm almost trying to get into the scene. And the wide angle lens seems to make it possible to get in there. Uh, and when I see it on film, it's, what I love is it's, it's filling up your peripheral vision more. There's, there's more information out there. So it's about, for me, a lot of the times, it's people in an environment is what it's about. There's a dialogue between the background and them. And so I end up doing that. I just like clutter as well. I just like, <laughs> you know, I, 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 when I'm working on a film, I'm, I, I tend to sometimes, uh, not, I don't get bored. I'm just running out of um, chances to do more things. So I keep adding more bits and pieces in there in the image. And then and we're setting up the shots. I'm always trying, oh, a little bit there, and it's like that. And, and, and so it's, it's done in a in just a very instinctive way as opposed to anything else. I mean, I, the idea is uh, urban decay. That just is something that's always been with me. I'm really happy in the country, and I come to cities, and I always see the, the bad side of them, it seems to me. I'm not, I think I was born in the country, and it's always stuck with me. Um, other than that... Dutch Dutch angles are things that I've always played with a bit because you can just get a different different angle. When we did um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, we did it really consciously, Dutching, so the horizon was never level. There's only one point in the film where suddenly when it gets really freaky and we level the horizon, hopefully everybody's been so used to this and begin get, thinking that's normal and sneak goes straight. It's like, that should be shocking, and it actually does work that way. <laughs> and it's... It's it's nothing much more than that. I sometimes, um, I know it. I don't know. I I, I think I find the, the you're more involved when I watch some of the earlier films with, with even slightly wider angle lenses. I actually find it disturbing because I when I'm in the audience, I'm in the screen. It's, it's surrounding me, mm. so it's a little bit uh, claustrophobic, which in some instances I think improves the experience. Yeah, I think hyper-reality is what it is. I mean, I, I don't know how to make a, a truly naturalistic film. I don't see things that way. And in, in a strange way, I like what we do is, in a sense, saying this is artifice. This is not the natural, real world. This is a, an impression of it. Because I find films that are done in sort of handheld kitchen sink, doco style, is in a way it's cheating because I think people think that's more truthful, more honest, and more true representation of the world. And I disagree with that. I think it's just a technique that makes it look that way. But you can lie really well doing that kind of technique. <laughs> and of course, in this film, and so many of the scenes were in were sort of in people's imaginary worlds. So that yeah, and that gives you a chance to suddenly. I mean, sometimes we play with that where you, you use longer lenses and then you go through the mirror, and then <gasps> it, it just. It breathes, and it goes like that. And so we're pushing it sometimes. Sometimes the wide-angle lenses are just because we're in that little theater, and there's no room. You have no idea how tiny that place was. <laughs> and to actually get a shot, you had to use a wide-angle lens. Right. Okay. Over here. So this is praise for Tom Waits' performance, and um, how did you choose him, and then how did you work with him? Well, I mean, Tom was in Fisher King briefly just before the big waltz in Grand Central Station. So we're friends, and 
Um, his connection on this one began with a, uh, there was a Dutch animator, a friend of mine, who wanted Tom to do some voices in his animation. I sent this material to Tom, and he didn't want to do it. And he wrote me back saying, yeah, I don't want to do this, but Terry, you got anything for me here? And, and I said, well, well, Tom, I've just written a part for the devil. He said, well, I'm in. Uh, and he didn't even, he, he didn't read the script. He was in. Bingo. And... Uh, Oh, he's just, I mean, he's, to me, he's one of the living gods out there. I mean, I worship this man. I think he's extraordinary. His music is just, oh, just the best. I, I, I recently, I, I introduced him as saying, this is the man who writes songs for the angels and sings them with the voice of Beelzebub. Yeah. And that's Tom. So there was very little I had to do. This is, he knows that territory that the devil marches in. And, uh, and uh, he... I loved his relationship with Chris Plummer. It's a great double act. And and Tom started at one point ad-libbing a bit because his his use of words is just breathtaking. And and there's a scene after Lily goes through the mirror in, into the the he, into hell and Parnassus is on his crag and Mr. Nick turns up commiserating with him and, and he says, God, Bernie, I hate to see you like this. Um can offer you a stick of gum or a breath mint. And that was his ad lib, and I fell off my chair when he did that. It was just wonderful. <laughs> did, did you allow much ad libbing or improv during the film? Because there's such great comic timing in the, in the banter. Well, it, a lot of it, some of it started with Heath, because Heath was just firing on all cylinders on this film. He was just having a ball. And, and he started ad libbing quite a bit. And I don't normally. You know, encourage it, um, but his ad libbing was so precise; it was right on the button, mm. and it was always within character. It wasn't skewing out there in the wrong direction. It was always there, and I just want—I just left him to do it because he was getting, he was enjoying it so much, and he was bringing a lot more into it with his ad libs, yeah. and that—that that started Andrew Garfield, who uh, had never ad libbed before. He started doing it, and he was getting better. And it was it was quite interesting to watch that kind of confidence building. And Andrew was interesting because when Heath died, there was a void left there. Well, on many levels, but Andrew kind of rose to the occasion, and, he, and his his character became more confident. More, it was expanding more, and he started ad libbing more, mm-hmm. and and he was also taking on I think some of the comic timing that Heath had been uh, doing uh, and he just got funnier and funnier I mean, that scene where he's in drag and the Russians are there and he says you know uh, put that man down and what, what's, I can't remember what the lines are what are you playing with this is, this is, you're not in your, your room with your toys and your, your guns this is a human being and, all, and that was all I'd lived he just started flying right. and it's, it's really nice when you've got actors who um, gain that kind of confidence and they're just enriching, enriching it all the time. Interestingly enough, Chris Plummer never ad-libbed. I mean, he's just too, um, too good a pro. And he made sure that the, the dialogue in the script was to his liking in rehearsals. And, uh, and we discussed it all in advance. And then he didn't deviate. Um, so it was, it was you know, in some ways, many different acting styles all being thrown together. And, uh, and somehow they all 
balanced each other. I mean, with Tom and Chris, it was like two musicians at work because Chris's voice is, you know, it's just a great instrument and he plays it beautifully. And the two of them, it was almost like a, you know, a couple of jazz players riffing, boom, and they would bounce off each other rhythmically and, 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 and their tones were dancing. It was fantastic to watch the two. Yeah, and the actors also, some of them were riffing on, on Heath in a way. I mean, Johnny Depp, I mean, the style of performance. Yeah, well, that was an interesting one because uh, Johnny, Colin, and Jude, all, all we were able to do was give them a DVD of some of the stuff we'd cut together with Heath. And when they arrived, there was no time to, rehearsal, to rehearse. And that was one of the reasons I was only asking friends of Heath to get involved because they knew him well and they understood what he was like. So... It was it was a kind of a shortcut to the characters, and I mean Johnny was there. He turned up, no rehearsal. Let's go, boom! And we had one day and three and a half hours to shoot what you saw on film. Hmm. Woof! Amazing, wow. just brilliant. Um, and Jude and, and Colin, Colin in some ways had the most difficult job because it's the longest part, yeah. and. Uh, and he pulled it off. He said it on certain days he felt he was actually channeling Heath. Hmm. I mean, Heath's spirit was hanging over this whole thing. It was, in fact, it was more like a weight. The fact that, are we going to do something worthy of Heath for his last movie? It was like this burden we were carrying. And nobody knew whether what we were doing was going to work. We just had marched forward. And uh, it was incredibly complicated, the scheduling us and, and the three guys, because... They were doing other things, and we were constantly having to shift and turn. We'd have it set on a s stage, and then suddenly, oh, somebody was available. We had to pull that set off, put another one in. It was, it was I mean, it was a full-blown nightmare was what it was. But uh, <laughs> hopefully it doesn't show on film. I hope it, full, it feels smooth and happy and wonderful. And playful. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay, I'll take, I think we have time for one more, so go ahead. What is the significance of the Percy character? He makes everybody look tall. That's his <laughs> function. Vern Troyer is there to make the rest of us look tall. Come on. Uh, <laughs> Percy is, is the cynic. Percy is the one that probably knows the truth about Parnassus. Parnassus may be lying to all of us. I don't trust him for one moment. Uh, come on, who's a thousand years old? Do you believe that sort of thing? <laughs> uh, yes, I know. I do too. <laughs> Uh, Percy is also Jiminy Cricket to his Pinocchio, isn't it? I mean, I don't know how long Parnassus' nose got on this film, but uh, there is, he's his conscience. He's the one that sees through uh, Parnassus' bullshit, if that's what it is. Uh, he's also the snappiest dresser. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much. I, think, um, I hope that you continue to not see other people's movies so you keep <laughs> thinking that you're making normal films. <laughs> And um, yeah. come back with your next one. But congratulations on this. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks.